Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the Acts of the Apostles, where this morning we are going to be looking together at chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. That's Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. You can find that passage either on page 1072 in your pew Bibles or pages 18 and 20 in your Acts journals. Last week, you of course know that we took a very brief hiatus from our normal course of worship, and I know that many of you were able to join us in holding our worship service down at the Henry County Fair. I trust that you found the change to our regular routine as refreshing as I did, and it's, it's always great, though, to be able to go out and to proclaim the gospel in the very community that many of us here are a regular part of. However, I also very much enjoy being back in the sanctuary this morning and getting back into the book of Acts. You will remember the last time that we did that, we continued to look at the healing of this man who we are told was lame from the time of his conception, being healed, of course, by Peter and John in the temple courtyard. And more specifically, we look then at the sermon that was preached by Peter in light of that event and the subsequent response that it evoked. The people had begun to turn towards Peter and John in admiration for the power that they had displayed in healing this man. And I mentioned to you that Peter responds to their attention not at all basking in it, but rather in absolute Holy Spirit-directed gospel fruit type of humility. He says to them, in effect, what are you doing looking at us? We are sinners like you. Our perfection in righteousness is not now, nor has it ever been a thing. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. We have not somehow placed Almighty God into our debt to display this kind of power. We are but conduits of the power of our risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter tells them, this man has not been healed by us or by our power. He has been healed by King Jesus. He is risen and he has ascended to his throne where he will rule for eternity. Then Peter takes this crowd of gawkers at once to the throne of grace. He takes them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the glorious message of the kingdom. And we were challenged, or at least I hope we were challenged, by Peter's very clear, growing knowledge of the word of God. Peter, in effect, takes them, as it were, to Bible school. Do you remember? He takes them back to the promises made by Almighty God to the patriarchs. The promises made to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He takes them back to the prophets, specifically to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52 and 53. And he shows them that the substance of the promises, the subject of Isaiah's prophecy, is one and the same. It is indeed this very Jesus. He alone is Isaiah's suffering servant. 
And you will remember that Peter does not downplay their sin at all in taking them by the hand and leading them into the everlasting arms of the Savior here. He makes it very clear. They have sinned and that they have fallen far short of the glory of God. That these are real and deadly sins. There are no respectable sins. All sin is cosmic treason against a holy God who hates sin with a holy hatred. And they had certainly sinned. They had acted very wickedly. He tells them that though they had most certainly sinned in causing Jesus to suffer all that he had to endure leading up to and including the cross, though they were responsible for that sin, God is much bigger than us, and He alone is sovereign over everything. Peter first, of course, told them the bad news. They were guilty of sin against Almighty God. In fact, they were guilty of killing the Son of God, the promised and long-awaited Messiah of God's people. The Savior, their Lord. They had killed Jesus Christ, and He was the one. The one they should have been looking for. The one they should have been hoping for. They had attempted to end Him and to force His name into the obscurity of a villainous history a remembrance of someone getting what he deserved. And that is the bad news. And undoubtedly, it had to have hurt those tremendously who heard it and who knew it to be true. It had to have cut them to their cores. But of course, a gospel-humbled man like Peter was seeking something far greater than just their remorse. Or their sorrow. He was not trying to make them feel bad simply in an effort to ruin their day. No, beloved, he was showing them their own desperate need for the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. He moved from the bad news of their sin and treachery to the good news that in Jesus Christ... There was forgiveness, there was peace, and there was joy to be had for eternity. And of course, it was music to their ears, and I trust it's music to our ears as well. It certainly was music to these tortured souls on this day, because we know that a great many of them were saved. Peter told them the good news that their sins may still be blotted out. And I pointed out to you, beloved, that this truly is a beautiful picture of gospel hope here, isn't it? Think about what Peter said. He said, you killed Jesus Christ who only came to save you. You murdered him. And he has forgiveness for you. 
Beloved, what could ever be more to us than this? There is forgiveness for us. Regardless of how heinous our sins are, regardless of how heinous our sins have been or will be, Jesus Christ came for this end. To suffer and to die and to rise again for the likes of sinners like you and I. Praise God for his grace. And Peter told them, repent. Turn from your sin towards your Savior and find solace like you have never known. Find real and lasting peace for your troubled soul. Find rest for your weary body and mind because Jesus came to give it to you. Be restored in Jesus Christ through faith that God graciously gives and long for the final restoration that is still yet to come when he will come again with glory and make all things new. New heavens, new earth, real gospel hope. This is one side of that great divide that the gospel brings to all of humanity. For those being saved, it is truly the balm that soothes all that ails us in this life. However, beloved, that is but one side. As I've already mentioned, there are two. The other side finds in the gospel not only foolishness, but an infuriating foolishness. And that is a reaction that leads to violent opposition. It leads to anger, hatred, and even malice towards its grand subject, Jesus Christ, and his followers alike. And as we saw Peter stand to preach the gospel boldly, and very many, we are told, ran to Jesus as a result of the Holy Spirit applying the truth of the gospel to their hearts. So now we will see that opposition also begin to build up some steam and start to seek to do all that it possibly could to thwart and even try in vain to end progress, the progress of Christ's church through causing very real suffering for the followers of Jesus Christ. Violent opposition began to rear its ugly head in Jerusalem. Very real suffering began to be handed out to the church and to her leaders as a result. However, as we've seen throughout the Word of God, what one meant for evil, the Lord of glory used for the good of his kingdom. Though suffering certainly took away some of the physical comfort of the people of God, it did not cause their growth to be stunted either numerically or spiritually. Faith blossomed to the glory of God as more and more ran into the arms of Jesus. Suffering is often the good soil that the seed of the gospel grows so voraciously in. We will see that in the weeks ahead and we'll see it even here in the chapter that we now find ourselves in the middle of.
So let's look together now to the Word of God. I'd like you to follow along as I read Luke's words here in Acts chapter 4. Again, I I will read verses 1 through 12. Hear now the holy and errant and infallible Word of our Lord. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of just the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has now been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, this is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to dig into your word this morning. I pray that your spirit would fill us. I pray that you'd be with me, that I would handle your word in an accurate way, in a way that brings conviction and hope in the gospel to your people, and in a way that brings glory and honor to your holy name. Father, we pray as we sit under the preaching of your word that we would hear these things with Holy Spirit ears hearing these things, that we would be transformed by these things for the glory of your holy name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke tells us that even as Peter and John are speaking with the people, that the opposition comes in order to try and put a stop to what had been transpiring here on the colonnade known as Solomon's Portico. And this resistance to the gospel consists of the priests of the temple, the captain of the temple, and some unnamed, unnumbered uh, amount of Sadducees. And I think that we need to just sort of pause here and we need to consider what is going on in this narrative. These men, who we know make up the Sanhedrin, represent what we could refer to as old Israel. They are still waiting for a a military-style deliverance from the hands of their foreign oppressors. And as 
those who are waiting for such, they have, of course, of course, rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Especially the Sadducees here would have been very aggravated by the mention of Christ's resurrection, as they had rejected even the notion of any bodily resurrection after death. So I want to be clear, they are not arriving on the scene here as more curious observers. They're not trying to get to the bottom of anything. They're here for a purpose. And that purpose is to put an end to this radical new following of Jesus Christ. To even scandalize the name of Jesus Christ. So that's one side. On the other side, we have the apostles. They are the new Israel, if you will. They see that the church is being built in the name of the resurrected King, Jesus Christ, King Jesus. They see in Him the fulfillment of all of God's promises to His people. So, of course, we know there is bound to be a clash. And Luke tells us as much. He tells us why they had to... why they had shown up in the middle of all of this. Why were they there? Look at verse 2. Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. These men were angry about what was transpiring in the temple proper. And I know I've said it several times before, but we simply cannot afford to miss the difference in the Apostle Peter. In the grand scheme of things, not a whole lot of time has passed since this same Peter cowered and lied about even knowing Jesus Christ in the face of the terrifying questioning of a little girl. And here he is, about to be confronted by the leaders of the temple. Even the muscle of the temple is there. And they are more than just a little bit upset over his preaching and teaching under the banner, under the authority of Jesus Christ in the temple. And do you notice that they're not even questioning whether this man had truly even been healed of his lameness? Because there's nothing to question. That much was a given. They all can see with their own eyes that something miraculous had transpired. Much in the same way that they also did not acknowledge that something had transpired at the grave of Jesus Christ. All signs pointed very clearly to his resurrection. He was no longer there. There were eyewitnesses who had been paid off and told to lie about his disciples coming in under the cover of night and stealing away his body because it could not be denied and it could not be proven to be legitimately false. There were many who had witnessed the post-resurrection Christ teaching and encouraging his church. These men were not moved towards repentance by any of it. And beloved, it gives us a very sobering picture of the human heart lost in sin without the direction of the Holy Spirit. 
It not only doubts that Jesus is the way, the only way, but it hates the very idea of it so much that it refuses for even a moment to consider it as fact. The language here is much stronger than our English renderings would suggest. These men were more than greatly disturbed. The language suggests something closer to they were worn out by what was going on in the temple. They were unable to live with what was going on in the temple. They were vexed. They were angry. They were furious. And they were there to make trouble. They came for scandal to be associated with these new followers, these new leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. The captain of the temple guard was there for this purpose. He was second in command in the temple only to the high priest. He was the head of of the temple police, if you will. He had the power to arrest. And that's why he's here. Beloved, this is unbelief as a response to the gospel. And unbelief acts on that disgust. And we are told here that Peter and John were apprehended, that these men laid hands upon them. The language suggests that they were roughed up. They were thrown into jail overnight until they could stand before the leaders of the temple on the next day. Right? They laid hands on them. They handled them roughly. This is a spectacle in the temple of God. They want the people to see that this kind of thing would not be looked upon favorably. I want you to understand, this is dangerous opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These men that have already come to terms with their right to oppose Jesus Christ and the gospel. They are men that already have blood on their hands. The blood of Jesus, the Son of God. And why are Peter and John being arrested? Because they are testifying to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are testifying to being eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They are testifying that Jesus is the only way by which man can be saved. That is why. And so here is Peter, the impetuous one, the one who cut off the ear of Malchus when they came to arrest Jesus, the one who cowered under the vigorous interrogation of a young girl and lied rather than admit that Jesus was his master. But something has, of course, changed for Peter. Peter has seen Jesus as he truly is. He has spoken with Jesus since his death. He has been given insight and understanding of the revelation of God in the word of God. He is emboldened now by the very power of the Holy Spirit to do the work of kingdom building for his king. And so he and John go off into custody and they're thrown into jail, but they will not renounce him. Luke tells us, though, that the crowd who witnessed this, 
They were not at all swayed by the show of muscle and authority on the part of the Sanhedrin and that many of the men, just counting the men here, their numbers came to be about 5,000. Many commentators on this chapter believe that the number of men and women together at this point was probably upwards of 15,000 souls who have come to the king and who have been blessed to be a part of the kingdom. They have run from death towards life. And I think we need to point out something here that is, at least for me, very convicting. I want you to consider what these followers of Jesus knew that they were facing for the message of the gospel and service in Christ's kingdom. At the very least, they knew that they faced harassment and eventual arrest. They, of course, faced being thrown out of the community, out of the synagogue. We've spoken before on, that, on the impact of something like that. They were going to be shunned. And worse, they may even face death at the hands of this opposition. And they are undeterred. They are unmoved. Peter and John are unmoved. Why? Because they know Jesus Christ. They've placed their hope entirely in Him. What else could they do? He is their hope. He is their life. They only have life through union with Jesus Christ by faith. They've been united to His life, His death, His resurrection. He is their everything. How can they stay in the face of such hostile opposition? How can they run to Him knowing what it's going to bring into their lives? Because anything that is not this, anything that is not the gospel is worth giving up in order to have Jesus and His righteousness. Even life itself. You see, they believe it when they say that God is truly with them. That God loves them. That God has provided with them, God has provided them with an inestimable valued gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have all that they'll ever need in Jesus Christ. They know it. So, beloved, I ask you this morning, do we? Do we know it? Not just in theory, but in reality. Do you believe in the truth of the gospel like this? You say, well, how, how do I know that? Well, are you willing to die for this? Are you willing to suffer for this? Perhaps you think I'm being a bit too, too dramatic. You think, well, okay, Steve, but we're not the same, right? Our situations are very different from these people. We are not persecuted like this here. And you're right. We are not. 
No one stopped me in the parking lot from coming here to lead worship this morning. No one's going to be waiting for me when I get out, Lord willing. Depends how this goes, right? No one's going to be waiting for me. I'm not persecuted. But the reality is, we still have to face the question. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ truly is the pearl of great price. It is the field of inestimable value. It is the treasure that nothing will ever compare to. What would you be willing to trade for it? That's a searching question, isn't it? Our situation does not change the reality of what the gospel is. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I want you to look at Peter's boldness considering what he knows. Considering that what he knows is growing as he addresses face to face the Sanhedrin. He and John spend the night in jail. The next day they're placed before the Sanhedrin and they're given the opportunity to get out of trouble. They only need to avoid just a couple of things. They need to avoid ascribing too much power to the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They really need to avoid any and all references to the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the resurrection of anyone else for that matter. They need to be very careful not to make any exclusivity claims about salvation only being available in Jesus Christ. That's it. Don't rock the boat, and everybody gets to go home. And so the leaders put their question to him after he's had a night in jail to think about it. By what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter responds with this if-then statement. He says, in effect, if we are being judged... For a good deed done to a helpless man. We need to feel the sting of his words here. If we are being judged for helping this poor man who has stood before all of you for the last 40 years and found no help and no hope. Not a great way to start, Peter, right? You can feel the temperature probably beginning to rise in that room rather quickly. By what means, Peter says, he has been clearly made well. He stands before you whole. No one can deny it. He's there. He's standing up on his own two lame feet. And Peter delivers the real message in verses 10 through 12. He says, then... If these things, then this. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you. This Jesus, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Stone. Nor is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. 
Beloved, think about what he's saying here. He not only does not hide his answer or try to somehow manipulate his situation, he tells them exactly what they think matters nothing to him at all. He's been saying it all along. He's saying, this is him. Do you not understand? This Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. You do not need me to tell you. The word of God has been telling you from the very beginning. You probably heard similarities there with what, uh, what Peter says to Isaiah 28, which we read this morning. He's actually quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. It's the verse that immediately precedes the verse that we say every week at the beginning of our worship. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Why will we rejoice and be glad in it? Because Jesus is the foundation to everything. He is the cornerstone. He is the king ruling and reigning for us. He is with us. He has redeemed us. He loves us with a love so deep and rich that we can just barely begin to see the edges of it. And it's still more than enough. And I want you to see what Peter is doing here. He's once again preaching the gospel to this audience. To his enemies. He's telling them that there is still a way a sure way that even these men could all be saved. They need to run to Jesus. Nothing's more important. He's the one. And we'll look at the response of these men next week, but I want to try and bring things to a close here this morning with this. Perhaps you're wondering why Peter would do it. He really just needed to be quiet so that he could live to fight another day. I mean, that would be in his best interest, right? Why cross the lines in this way? Is it because he loves a good fight? Perhaps he's just one of those guys that seems to love to be in the middle of controversy, loves to argue, loves to be mean-spirited. We know better than that, right? Is he scared of what God will do to him if he fails God again? Again, I think we know better than that. Why then? Beloved, my answer might surprise you. Why does Peter not just sit in silence and try to get through this? Because he loves his neighbor. The Sanhedrin members standing in front of him waiting for him to make one false step. They are his neighbors. They too have been made in the image of Almighty God. They too are wearing the scarring and disfigurement 
of their father Adam's sin. They too know failure and sorrow and heartache. They too are broken individuals living in a broken creation and feeling the weight of that brokenness every step of the way through this valley of tears we call life. They may even be so hardened in their sin that they will still deny him and run headlong into foolishness and eventually death. But Peter must point them to Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which broken men may be saved. Paul will write as much to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Peter will not deny Jesus Christ because he cannot deny what he knows to be the absolute truth. Peter will also not be silent here in this court of angry men that have been stacked up against him. Because by the grace of God, he loves his neighbor. And his love for for his neighbor, the fruit of the gospel, will compel him to place water before thirsty souls, even if they do not know yet just how thirsty they actually are. Peter knows that he's sitting with Jesus in heavenly places. And that he must love enough to share the message of his king. So the challenge is obvious this morning, isn't it? Beloved, think about the things that have you good and angry right now. And I'm asking you, have you taken Satan's bait and found a way to self-righteously justify your anger with your brother or sister in Christ? If so, I want to be clear. It's your peace that is on the line. Does love compel you not only to forgive, but to do all that you can to see your brother or your sister in Christ your fellow image bearer, thrive. Because it should. Love should compel you to stop your campaign against any who get in the way of your own vain self-worship. I want you to understand something. The gospel changed Peter. Dramatically. I want you to ask yourself, are you any different? This gospel is worth dying for. If it's not worth dying for to you, then I'm begging you, look at it again. This gospel is worth spreading even to those whom you believe are your justified enemies. Those who stand opposed to what you're doing in the kingdom. 
And if it's not that for you, I beg you, look again. Repent of your sin and run to Jesus while the door of salvation is still wide open to you. And then raise your voice to the King of Kings in grateful, heartfelt adoration and praise and know that there is no cost that is too much to give for life in Christ because anything else, beloved, is much less than Jesus. Amen?